We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dino Weeks and Dave Woodard. Happy Friday, everyone. You have made it. Savior what you have and spread the joy. And pass me the chips. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Welcome to the fun. Glad to have you here. Oh, my goodness. It's Friday. Where did that go? Are you kidding me? It was killer. Uh, uh, welcome to the fun Friday edition. Lots going on today. Healthcare, healthcare, healthcare is the order of the day, and that's great to see. We're all for saving the planet, but how about saving healthcare first? Can we do that first? Um, and 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 why are we not talking about vaccination as much as we're talking about masking? Uh, you know, more talk about masking than we're hearing about vaccination. Vaccination recommended for everybody six months of age and older, says Nasi. Uh, this was the single thing that got us out of COVID, yet people are ignoring vaccination when it comes to the flu. Want to keep your kid out of the hospital? Want to keep your kid alive? Get them vaccinated against the flu. There are currently more kids unvaccinated in the hospital because of the flu in Canada, then there are people over the age of 65. Less than 15% of the kids are vaccinated. So, same message as COVID. You want to uh, keep less strain on the medical system? You want to save lives? Get the flu shot. Masking's great, but it was only a temporary measure until we got vaccine. Vaccine, 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 just as COVID-19. Or are you all fatigue with all of that because of the mandatory and the divisiveness uh, caused by people like our prime minister uh, and schools now bringing back masking talking on this show yesterday but not saying anything about how you have to do more to opt out of masking than if you stay in that misleads people people get cranky with that stuff finally christia freeland deputy prime minister finally the first time i've heard her talk about how concerned canadians are over health care if it's not affordability health care is the number one issue yes save the planet but save us first please save health care first please uh the premiers hammering hammering the federal government today uh and finally the federal health minister came out talked in circles we need a plan before we're giving more money blah 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 the provinces are looking for 28 billion dollars to get their uh, the fed share of contribution from 22 percent up to 35%. 28 billion. It was 27 billion that the Auditor General just reported the other day that this government blew by sending COVID payments out to people who didn't deserve them or shouldn't be getting them. So that money was wasted. That spent on health care would get us moving towards a plan. Moving forward, the Prime Minister constantly says he has our back. Can't wait to set up dental care. Can't wait to set up daycare. Can't wait to talk about climate change. Can't wait to talk about conservation. Has no interest in talking about health care. Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston said, when is the government going to stop walking away from us on this discussion? Here's what the Manitoba uh, Premier had to say. 
More than two years have passed since premiers publicly outlined our proposal for a new funding partnership. But unfortunately, despite assurances, we have received no meaningful response from the federal government. There have been no federal proposals, no substantive meetings or dialogue, and no real progress. Uh, we just want to be able to sit down at the table and have that discussion. What does that look like? Uh, we want to have that discussion at the table. I think Canadians expect us to to sit down as, as elected officials across our country from all levels of government to sit down and have that discussion to uh, to see what that looks like. That's all we're asking for. Ontario Premier Doug Ford on the same conference. But not coming to the table, it just doesn't cut it. We need, we need the federal government, in particular, we need the Prime Minister to sit down with us and broker a deal. On coming up with a plan. It's not about here's one chunk of money. It's about how can we plan for proper health care for our backlog surgeries for the next 10, 15 years? How can we plan for the infrastructure, mental health and addiction for the next 10, 15 years, knowing we have a, a proper partner? Um, we, we've been going out there for the last four years right now, uh, basing our budgets on we're getting 22%. Uh, Scott Moe, Premier of Saskatchewan, on the meeting. So that's the question I, I think that we are asking again today and saying that we're going to be moving forward uh, with that meeting uh, with the Prime Minister and, and, and inviting him uh, to attend uh, as soon as possible, quite likely at some point uh, very early in the new year. That's the question uh, that ultimately needs an answer and it needs an answer very quickly. And let's go. We've pretty much gone from coast to coast. Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston, as I was speaking earlier. We want the federal government to stop looking away from this. Stop stop walking past and whistling and just stop and have a little chat with us and help us make sure that Canadians get the standard of care that they have a right to expect. What is it about health care that this federal government that has our backs, that is introducing a dental care plan, which has the same lack of checks and balances as uh, the, the COVID-19 payments, talking about daycare, talking about climate change, talking about conservation, talking about everything except health care, talking about gun control. This is the number one issue other than affordability for Canadians not the climate climate's up there we can juggle a few balls at once but the number one and number two issues in this country are health care and affordability and right now we've got literally premiers from coast to coast to coast saying something needs to be done and we need to come up with a plan and after this was over the health minister to cloak came out and just around and around and around we need a plan before we can offer money Again, it's amazing that there's so many social issues that this government is concerned about, but health care does not appear to be one of them. I don't get it. We're going to talk about it today. Tis the season, you know. Do you know what it is? It kind of looks gray out there today, though. It'd be nice if we had some snow. It might kind of lighten it up a little bit. Sorry, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. People, don't throw things at me. Uh, tonight and over this weekend, Theater Ancaster is staging a unique production of A Christmas Carol at the Vortman stage of the Ancaster Memorial. Arts Centre, 357 Wilson Street East in Ancaster, to talk more about all of this. Al Croxall is with us, Director of Theatre Ancaster, and with us now. Al, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, I'm very well. I'm looking forward to our opening tonight. 
So first of all, before we get to that, tell us about Theatre Ancaster, what you're all about. Well, Theatre Ancaster, uh, we've been 25 years now in a community theatre. Started um, s- small and with our shows out of Ancaster High School. And we started with an annual musical in, uh, in, the, in the fall and just grew from there until now. We got our, our wish to have a, a brand new theatre arts complex in Ancaster open and it's been open since the summer and we're so pleased to be be able to move into it. What a great story and uh, and success story uh, Theatre Ancaster has been. Tell us about uh, this uh, production of A Christmas Carol and, and what people will see when they show up. Well, we're going to try to simulate in a kind of modern way uh, a radio program from 1939. The audience will come in and on stage there'll be a group of performers and microphones across the front where they used to have in 1939 they'd have one one or two mics in the middle and everyone would group around but now we're able to have you know half a dozen mics across and there's a sound effects table and uh, the the actors will come forward and read their lines from the script of the 1939 uh, Campbell Soup presentation featuring Orson Welles of a Dickens, A Christmas Carol. And this goes on, and as the show develops, there are sound effects and the characters interact, and uh, we're going to show some slides behind them from the uh, Alistair Sim movie as to help set the scene as things go on. Now, oh, that's a great idea. Now, will there be Campbell Soup commercials in there as well? Well, <laughs> I hate to give away a trick, but yeah, but but yes, there is, there is at least... At least one oh. Campbell Soup commercial sung by our very own Campbell Soup ladies. Oh, that is. Oh, I don't want to give too much away then. I was just kind of going off there in a joke, but good for you. Wow, this is going to be truly authentic. <laughs> uh, this is truly authentic. Uh, so, h- how did you come up with this idea? Because uh, uh, obviously you're a theater, so we're thinking, well, why not the play, this, that, or the other? This is a very unique uh, idea. How did you come up with this idea? Well, over the years, we have done a Christmas presentation, and it started off at the Ancaster Old Town Hall, which is a which is a nice historical old town hall right in the mm-hmm. middle of Ancaster. And then we we moved into the uh, old Fire Hall Art Center just down the street from the Old Town Hall, and we thought, well, you know, it really is a lot of work to lug all our equipment into the Old Town Hall to to have a, a variety show featuring our various actors and singers every Christmas. So we decided to to do the business at, in the in the old fire hall. And then uh, in nineteen in two thousand and seventeen, we decided to switch over to do the uh, the simulated radio shows, and we started with "It's a Wonderful Life" as a mm. as a radio show. Uh, with audience and we did it's a wonderful life and we did miracle on 34th street we did it's a wonderful life again and then covid hit we did nothing and then last year we did one that was all pre-recorded and and presented online and then this year we decided to go instead of wonderful life we decided to go with a christmas carol and here we are so what's different about whether it's uh, directing, performing, um what's different about doing this type of show, a radio uh, program as opposed to an actual uh, theatrical performance is that a uh, different skill set is it the same actors how do you how is it different it, it's a lot different and yet it's not the actors still have to de- de- deliver their lines 
in a convincing and, and realistic way. And we direct them and coach them on that. But they don't have to do stage blocking and they don't have to do mm. choreography. They just have to be the character when demanded and make the audience who's primarily just listening believe that they're that they are that character in that situation it's like old time radio compared to on stage where you have where you have sets and costumes and so on we we're appearing in i guess you might say business casual for our audience and then and they watch and listen in fact you could come to the show and just keep your eyes closed and just listen to it <laughs> for the uh, for the hour and 20 minutes that it takes to put on this radio show the radio shows in those days the Lux Radio Theater and the Campbell Soup Theater, they were an hour long. So the script is basically an hour long. By the time we introduce it and say goodnight, it goes a little longer than an hour. So why does this, because you, you just uh, uh, obviously painted a great analogy there, why does this work for the audience? Uh, you can see exactly, you know, theater of the mind, that was the old radio days, you know, close your eyes, imagine what that's like. Why does this work in a live theater now? Why is the audience interested in watching this as well as just hearing yeah, it? It has become, it has become, yes, it has become quite a popular thing for theater companies to do. So the audience can watch the characters come to the microphones and, mm. and uh, there's several of them at a time and they, you know, you watch their facial expressions there and, and, and listen to them and just watch the whole setup on the stage. The other thing about this show is that all our proceeds and we're all volunteers for this show, all our proceeds are going to the Ancaster community services Christmas basket. And um, I guess it almost gives the audience uh, a feeling of they're being backstage. They're watching something else being created. Yeah, a little bit, because what we'll do is instead of, you know, hiding backstage to the last minute, we're just mm -hmm. going to develop, you know, go on the stage, get ready, get our stuff ready, sort ourselves out and do our pre-show checks and that sort of thing with the audience there. And then when the, when the countdown comes, you know, we're ready to go on the air. You've got five minutes ready. And then the count, you know how the countdown works yeah. before you go on the air. And, and, then, and then they and then they go live and we'll have a little sign there that says on the air. And we'll ask the audience to applause, applaud at certain times and, and um, have them experience the, uh, the situation right along with us. What a great idea. Give us the logistics, Al, when, where, uh, all this weekend. Okay, yes, it opens tonight, and uh, doors open at 7, and the performance is at 7.30 in the Vortman Theater at the Ancaster Memorial Arts Center on Wilson Street. And then tomorrow afternoon at 2 o'clock, there's a performance, and tomorrow evening at 7.30, there's a performance, and then Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock will be our final performance. We are Ow. sold out tonight. We're sold out on Sunday, but we have quite a few tickets available for Saturday afternoon and Saturday evening. All right, Al Croxell with us, director of Theater Ancaster. Uh, this weekend at Theater Ancaster, unique production, radio production of A Christmas Carol, Vortman Stage at the Ancaster Memorial Arts Center. Al, good luck with this. Fascinating. Oh, thank you for taking the time to call me up. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, lots of chatter in the last 24 hours about uh, the release of Brittany Griner, a WNBA basketball player who was arrested in Russia uh, for having cannabis oil. And uh, they basically threw the book at her and off she went to prison. And then magically yesterday it announces that uh, or we hear announcements that she's on a plane and on her way home and was traded in a prisoner swap uh with someone known as the merchant of death 
uh, many now are questioning whether this was a fair trade. Probably the second question, just as the plane with Brittany in it left the ground. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, same to you, Scott. So this is these are so unfortunate situations. You feel for both uh, Brittany and Paul uh, Whelan, who's the other person that is still there that that everyone is talking about at this point. Um, but almost almost as soon as we heard of Brittany being released, the question was, "Wow, we gave up this for that." I mean, how can you possibly put a value on any of this? But on the other hand, is this a fair question? And what are your thoughts on this deal? I think um, all kinds of things, but first and foremost, I'm very pleased that she's home. And yeah. she is home. And we've got video of her uh, su- successfully getting off the plane. So she is uh, back in her home state and uh, is undergoing medical examination as we speak, apparently. So let's be pleased that something good has happened. Mm-hmm. And you were just playing Christmas music after all. So, the, uh, <laughs> thank you, Elliot. <laughs> you're welcome. The uh, other thoughts are: it's always invidious uh, to say, "Well, why this one and not that one?" Yeah, uh, this clearly was an unequal exchange in more than one way. First of all, you know, she was charged with a very minor crime, indeed, but uh, convicted and sent to. Uh, it, it's clear she was a political pawn. She was arrested on bogus charges. Uh, she was sent to a, a prison when, after a while, nothing happened. She was then sent to a, a vicious penal colony just as winter is about to to hit. So the um, the invidious comparison is between somebody who is arbitrarily arrested for no reason all whatsoever uh, uh, compared to a uh, the merchant of death, a well-known arms merchant who was uh, imp- implicated in all kinds of things, including what they finally got him on, was threatening to kill American troops by selling weapons to FARC, to the Colombian terrorist organization. That, uh, that was a sting operation, and you know, he got arrested. So this is clearly an unequal exchange. Somebody materially dangerous and, and uh, involved in terrorism mm. compared to somebody innocent who's a pawn in the whole game. Uh, any way we can bring others into this discussion, or is that impossible? You, as the president said the other day, you know, you're happy you get one out. Well, the the deal was apparently going to be for two, uh, an exchange of two for two. The uh, Paul Whelan is the other person that we hear the most about. Mm-hmm. He's, in fact, I've just <laughs> discovered he's he was born in Ottawa. <laughs> uh, so. Mm-hmm. Canada actually had, he's a dual citizen, but he's considered an American hostage at this point, arbitrary detention once again. Uh, he apparently was, was set up and he was put in jail primarily to hold as a hostage, and he is held as a hostage. He's been in a penal colony for four years. Uh, there's a very, very dangerous criminal that uh, the Russians wanted back, somebody connected to their intelligence services who was arrested in Germany, Scott, for murdering somebody in broad daylight, and he's put in jail for a very long sentence. Hmm. And apparently, in order to appease uh, the security services upon whom Mr. Putin relies at home, Mr. Putin was saying, well, we're not going to let anybody out unless we get this guy out. 
uh, but he's actually held in a German prison. Uh, this was goes back to last August. Apparently, there was a deal under under discussion. You know, would the Germans violate their own <laughs> their own uh, penal code in order to let out a convicted murderer? That didn't go anywhere. So this became suddenly at this stage a not a not a one for one or a two for not a two for one or a two for two, but a one for one exchange. Hmm. That seems to be our situation. But we have to stand back. What's really going on? is we have an, a regime, we, it's hard to call it a government anymore, in Russia, that will behave in this fashion. The arbitrary detention, uh, remember, that's a term that we've come to know because of the two Michaels, because of China's behavior. And mm-hmm. In regard to the Meng Wanzhou, Canada's led a, an international movement. 67 countries have signed on to a declaration on arbitrary detention, saying this isn't how civilized countries behave. And... Yet we know this is how, in fact, Russia is behaving. So we have one bit of good news and some unfortunate news. That's The big news is this is how Russia operates. Mr. Putin's Russia operates, and this is the result. Why do you think this happened now? Because there was, seemed there was nothing about this, and then boom, she's, it's the top story. Yes, apparently this has been going on. Negotiations have, in fact, been a high priority. Remember, this, uh, some of this goes back to the... To the Bush, uh, to the uh, Trump administration, uh, when other some, some of the negotiations for some of the exchanges began earlier, so it's been a constant uh, back channel operation. Uh, intriguingly, intriguingly, the UAE and Saudi Arabia were playing a role in this, <laughs> uh, but not hmm. in setting it up, just in mediating and not in mediating, but in facilitating the transfer itself. So there's another extra dimension in all this, the UAE and now Saudi Arabia, another country that would like to get in somebody's good books and off the bad books. So maybe that is being speculated, that fist bump that uh, Mr. Biden engaged in with Saudi's uh, de facto ruler, uh, perhaps there was a reason now to play nice with the Saudis, to give them um, a little breathing room because they in turn were being helpful in getting our hostages, and they are hostages, Western hostages, out. So what does this mean for Paul Whelan, who's still there? Does this, oh, does this, does this say anything about his imprisonment? Yes, it does. Uh, the negotiations are still going on. What it says is there is a back channel. There's, uh, there are ways of dealing with issues despite the Ukrainian war, or in fact because of it. Maybe Mr. Putin needs more victories at home. Uh, since he's not getting them on the battlefield, he'll get them through those exchanges if he can get more of his favored people out of jail. Uh, where they belong, in exchange for people who were, you know, innocent victims, but to put in the Russian penal system. So the, the those discussions are continuing. Uh, we aren't sure. We'll never. We're never sure until it happens how they'll come out. But the fact that Russia is quite willing to carry on conversations is, I guess, a good sign in and of itself. There was a prisoner released last April, Trevor. Or, somebody whose name is not generally known, but uh, there was an exchange last April. Uh, so it is possible. Uh, perhaps Paul Whelan will be uh, exchanged uh, in some kind of symbolic way that is important to Mr. Putin. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University, on the return of Brittany Griner and what it means, uh, especially with relations between the U.S. and Russia. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thank you, and same to you. 
When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. Lots of buzz around the new Harry and Meghan doc on Netflix. Nope, sorry, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, and it's going to be fascinating to see what the uh, outcome is of this, what the public perception is of this, and what it means for the royal family moving forward, who uh, are probably dealing with some image issues of late and uh, trying to, I guess, reset the royal family after the death of Queen Elizabeth. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert expert and fan of the royals and is with us now Alyssa. thank you for the time i hope you're well oh i am but i was so embarrassed when will called and he says Alyssa, have you seen that the megan megan and harry um documentary yet and i said no so <laughs> well i don't know if that says something that i don't know I don't know if you, if you should be embarrassed for seeing it or not seeing it at this point, Alyssa. Okay, I mean, you know, you, you know, honestly, I need, I, I know you're a fan of the Royals and such, but no, we wouldn't expect you to be sitting there, you know, uh, on the edge of your seat for the second that it actually was televised. Are you surprised by the amount of attention, uh, that this is getting? What do you think the buzz is on this as the first three episodes are coming out? You know, I think the buzz is, is that some people just don't care. There are some people who think, well, you wanted privacy. So you moved to the States, you moved your husband away from his royal family, but all you want to do is promote yourself and how normal you are without being in the royal family. So what does that say about privacy? I think there are some people who will be fans of it, but I think most people are looking at it with a jaded eye. So for example, when I was on my friend group chat um, yesterday, Somebody asked, oh, who's watching the Harry, Harry and Meghan documentary? And one person said yes. And she said, well, she says, I'm waiting for it to get interesting. Hmm. Um, you said, uh, and you brought up a good point, they wanted privacy, and now they got a Netflix show. They're the Kardashians. Um, it, what about they wanted to tell their side of the story? But I can't see how that is flattering for the royals. You know, it isn't. And there were some unfortunate incidences that did happen. So, for example, when the, um, you know, uh, Lady Susan Hussey was when she was dismissed for her insensitive remarks mm -hmm. and that kind of all played into, you know, what um, Megan says that she suffered when she uh, became introduced into the royal family. There's a lot of people who say that Megan is also just a Diana wannabe and she would, you know, really like to have that mantle. So I think there's a lot of speculation. But at the end of the day, you know, why would people care? Do people really care enough about what's going on? Do they care enough that they think it's going to dismantle the institution of the royalty in England? No, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Do I think this is one of those 15 minutes of fleeting fame and then there will be something else that will attempt to pile onto that? And I think that, you know, you also have to remember that after they did that interview with um, Oprah, you know, after the fact, Oprah found out that they out and out lied about some of the facts and she felt that she had really been had, that she was duped. So, you know, when you start to set a precedent of, um, you know, switching history or making history to suit your own purposes, then you really have to continually be transparent and truthful about your credibility and twisting the facts in order to suit your own purposes is not the way to do it. Uh, do you think people support one or the other, meaning um, uh, Harry and Meghan or the royals or they don't care about either or, or you know, they just want to move on? Do you think they support one side of the story and not the other or none of it at all? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. You you know, you call me a royal watcher, and I think that is true. So when I do see these things on Instagram, the first thing I do is go to the comments. And I would have to say that it's kind of split down the middle, that, you know, some of them think she's a heroine, and some of them just think that, you know, this this whole thing is just ridiculous and that, you know, she should fade away, you know, they should just fade away. And then, you know, I think it, it really is. Then you have another camp that is like, we just don't really care. So when you have the royal family trying to boost its relevance and to stay true to how, um, you know, the people of England have always thought about them, but the more they have shown themselves on popular media and social media platforms, the more of that mystique becomes stripped away. Because I think that at some point, we just think that, you know, we're not like the royals and the royals are not like us. So now they really have to work that much harder on building public perception that what they do is important and that it gives back to the country and that they are really with the times of, you know, how they should stand and how people should think of them and how that they are of value um, to England. Uh, Will and Kate booed when in the United States, booed in Boston. Um, Netflix uh, is big in the United States. Does this story have to sell in the United States in order to be successful? Yes, I think it does. I think that, you know, listen, people all around the world are certainly going to watch it. And I think that the streaming numbers will probably bear that out. But what the streaming numbers don't show is what their feelings were during when during uh, the, the watching period or after they did. I think that one of the metrics that you'll see is that I don't know how many episodes are coming out, but you'll see if there was a drop off. Maybe some people watch the first three episodes and then that was the end of it. So that's one way that you'll be able to measure the success. Alyssa Freeman with his PR and pop culture expert talking about the new Harry and Meghan doc. Are you watching it this weekend? Uh, Alyssa, are you watching the binges? Yes. (laughs) All right. We'll we'll chat again next week. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Enjoy. Have fun. That's all for now. All right. Celine Dion, obviously Canadian treasure known around the world. uh, Perhaps one of the most successful performers um, working today. Uh, I'm sure Eric might debate that. Celine Dion has has rescheduled uh, dates on a European tour, canceling some, announcing that she has a rare uh, neurological disorder called the stiff person syndrome. And it is interfering with her singing more or fewer than 5,000 known cases of this syndrome in the United States. Um, and uh, can really affect anybody at any point in their life. To talk more about the singing aspect of it, Eric Elper with us, publicist and music commentator, and is with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, everything's great. So, obviously, Celine Dion, I mean, my, my goodness, we certainly know the success that she has had, also the trials and tribulations that she's been through, the loss of her husband and such. Um, but what does this mean for her career moving forward? It seems she's had a very difficult time since her husband died. Yeah, and and uh, although that, that that the two obviously don't have anything to do with one another, you know, this is a person that has not had it very easy um, since the passing of her husband and her manager and mentor, uh, Renee. Uh, she revealed this week that she'd been diagnosed with stiff person syndrome, which is a rare neurological disorder, which um, aff- attacks the the features of the autoimmune system which means essentially that these um these intra it's called interneurons and those are the systems that are found in the spinal cord and when you have issues with that it could affect the way that your your arms are bent or when the bicep 
muscle flexes. It starts mm. in the abdomen and mysteriously works its way through the body. And the reason why they call it stiff person syndrome is because it literally locks your whole body up. It closes your voice box. It closes your throat. It closes your knees and your arms. And there's no really known cure. In fact, it, um, she wrote this week on Instagram when she announced it, that it affects one out of every million people around the world. And it's very, very rare in children. It's extremely rare between the ages of zero of 20 and 50 but as you get older um you know something like this tends to get misdiagnosed um you know they sometimes doctors will say it's illness it's anxiety it's phobia it's parkinson's disease it's mm. ms there's so many kind of layers in this rainbow um that it may get misdiagnosed but uh so more people might have it but yeah this is going to not only affect her tour but i think the entire music industry um in so many different corners i mean she's the third highest grossing artist of mm. all time when it comes to touring she's made over a billion dollars worth of ticket sales in her career so you don't just take that out and have everything just run as normal so what's the prognosis? What's the, the, the short-term schedule? Obviously, she's taking time off. Are there any treatments that we know of? What's her, what's her plan for the next year or so? Yeah, it looks like that she's had treatment for a little bit of time previous to actually going public. She's, um, she's taken medication. She has mostly the ability to keep what is happening in her body tolerable and keeping them under control. The problem though, is that because you can't kind of go through this with just suddenly being cured, those interruptions to your body and that system being attacked um, from the bad cells to the healthy cells are essentially, they can strike at any given time. So it's smart that she took this time off while she tries to figure out what to do, you know, knowing obviously her wealth and her status and her success she's going to have probably the best help on the entire world yeah. for this but you know you can't just suddenly say well this is what it is so forgive me i mean this is somebody who is full of class full of grace and she's going to want to make sure that that she gets all the right treatment before deciding to go out on the road away from her family uh, as you said, obviously extremely successful, but has she actually had a period in her life where she has just shut it off, just stopped for a year or so and just shut her down? Um, has she, has she given her body or, you know, even what she's been through that kind of time? It doesn't look like it. You know, since she released her first album back in the early 1980s and then learned English and then took over the world. She's been essentially touring on a regular schedule every two years, um, whether it's throughout North America or around the world. Um, and she is hugely successful around the world. In fact, she holds many um, fast ticket selling records in Paris, in Ireland, in various venues across America. And then, of course, there's the, the residency show in Las Vegas. She's done over 1,100 shows from 1990 to 2020. So, you know, selling over eight and a half million tickets in her lifetime. And a large part of that wasn't really in in Canada. A large part of it is in the Netherlands and Belgium and France, all those places where you kind of have to go once every, every couple of years in order to just kind of keep things going. So she really hasn't taken a break. 
Uh, it seems, is, and just even to look at her, she looks absolutely exhausted. And I know she's been doing this since she was a, a young girl, since she was a young person. And you wonder if she knows how to do that, how to stop for a bit. Because, again, her husband was her manager, pretty intense manager, all of that. It, it's you, you wonder if she just needs to, not just needs to, who am I? I'm just a guy listening here. No, 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 um, but you're 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 absolutely on the right track. And, and I'll even go far to say, that I don't even think you have to be Celine Dion when you're in music or when you're an artist mm. to want to keep things going to the billion dollar level. When you're an artist and you've had some semblance of success, you want it again. And yeah. you don't understand when it doesn't happen to you because you, as the artist, think that what you're creating is the best thing bigger than the last thing that maybe hit number one so around eight o'clock at night most of these musicians that you and i have talked about in the past they start to get very nervous and start looking for the applause you know they start looking for where's my stage where's my catering where's all of this stuff it's the reason why bono from u2 his wife sends him to a hotel for a week after every U2 tour, just so that he can calm down before he gets back home. Mm. Celine Dion, who had been going for essentially 35, close to 40 yeah. years now, she may not be able to shut this off, and, and she's going to miss it a lot. Eric Alper, publicist, music commentator, talking about Celine Dion and her illness, which is uh, forcing her to cancel, so, uh, cancel some dates. Oh, and don't forget Blackie and the Rodeo, uh, Rodeo Kings tomorrow night, First Ontario Concert uh, Hall. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, there was a time when people were screaming and yelling about getting Huawei away from our 5G uh, internet system and the backbone of it. The five eyes, the US, UK, Australia, all saying the same thing. The prime minister not even interested in having this discussion uh, in, in, in any form whatsoever. Now we have heard more in the last week than I think we've heard our prime minister say in a lifetime time in regard to uh, China and their interference in Canadian life. Uh, the RCMP has suspended a controversial contract that it awarded to a Canadian company whose parent organization has ties uh, to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Safety Minister Marco Mendicino said that this contract, which had been inked in uh, October of 2021, uh, has been uh, now put on pause. There's others there as well, dating back to his early as 2017 uh, and uh, told reporters that they were looking very carefully at all the equipment that has been installed and so on and so forth. My, how the tone has changed. Uh, let's bring in Carmi Levy, his hasn't, technology analyst and journalist. He is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So uh, your thoughts on uh, these contracts, uh, obviously the prime minister earlier on, it was saying, I don't know anything about this, whether it was Chinese interference in elections or such, uh, now talking about how the public servants, the civil service, uh, he's going to question them on how all of this happened, uh, basically throwing them under the bus. But this is, this is stuff that a lot of security experts have been talking about for a long time as the example of 5G. How do you explain? this sudden change in this government's view on all of this 
Well, because I think somebody raised a ruckus and they realized they can't just keep sweeping it under under the rug anymore. You know, this is this particular contract that sort of drove this entire controversy was was awarded in October 2021. So 14 months ago. Why did it take 14 months for it to bubble to the top and for this to be an issue? I was saying at the time when Huawei was kind of flaring, uh, when there's this national debate raging over whether they should be allowed to bid on uh, providing hardware to telecommunications companies as they build out their 5G networks. So, you know, we can we can lock Huawei out of the Canadian market, but really the issue is much larger than that. It's every single Chinese-owned company that provides anything like this technology. Uh, we've got to look at it holistically, not just, uh, you know, demonize one company and then call it done. Uh, and so this is an example. Now we're, we're, we're kind of peeking under the rocks a little bit, and we're seeing that there are lots of other smaller companies with really small contracts. This contract was barely half a million dollars almost a rounding error for the federal government shouldn't have gotten mm. the attention that it did but i think when you add all these up and you have all these chinese companies that are providing the hardware for some really sensitive technologies sensitive networks over which some very sensitive traffic will flow uh you know like this is now this is the time to have that national conversation we should have been having it years ago well now maybe the prime minister is going to finally have to deal with it and is going to have to finally oversee implementing some better frameworks so that everyone in every federal department uh, doesn't run afoul of this, doesn't you know, magically give contracts to Chinese companies when we have no business doing so. Uh, we remember it took years for the decision on Huawei to ban Huawei out of our 5G system. Are you surprised these contracts were yanked so quickly? Uh, I am. Considering, I, I as you said, they're considering, as you said, Carmi, they're a lot more minor than than a five G contract. Well, my fear here, Scott, is is that you like a, a lot of this wasn't political. For example, they were so small, but they flew under the radar of the federal yeah. government. They, you know, uh, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie shrugged her shoulders and said, you know, this was a it, it was a contract that should never have been awarded. And she sounded exasperated about it when she was asked. And I, and I you know, I think the answer wasn't so much what she said. It was how she said it. It was there's a whole lot going on within the, the apparatus of the federal government that our politicians aren't even aware of. This is being handled by bureaucrats day to day, you know, contracts. I'm sure Melanie Jolie doesn't care about a five or a six figure contract. But the, the problem is they add up. Uh, and the problem is, is no matter how small these contracts are, if they involve a Chinese source con- uh, company, then there will be security issues that need to be discussed, vetted, and decided upon, and it doesn't matter how small that contract is. And we haven't been having that contract, that conversation. And frankly, it frightens me because I don't know how many other co- you know small companies with small contracts that are out there, and how much at risk we as Canadians are because literally the Chinese government has its finger on the pulse of the Canadian technology landscape. Where do we draw the line here? Because obviously, you know, there's a series of really small contracts here as opposed to big ones. So perhaps that doesn't raise a red flag. Uh, we were talking about 5G, yet we know that Apple, um, their phones are assembled uh, in China. So where do you draw the line? What do you allow them to do or have their fingers in? What do you what should they not have their fingers in? I think uh, anything that involves encryption, anything that involves technologies that have direct access to sensitive traffic data, um, I think that should uh, go through a much more significant process of scrutiny than uh, perhaps lower level technology that doesn't touch uh, the stuff that makes us stay awake at night. So, uh, you know, what that framework is, I don't know. 
but I do know that that framework needs to be a lot more stringent than what we have in place right now, which is essentially uh, government departments signing contracts that elected officials have no idea are being signed. And that needs to stop. Uh, and so we, we do need to have better guidance to federal employees, federal government employees, so that they know exactly who they can and cannot talk to when they're when they're uh, uh, reaching out for contracts, when they're selecting companies, vetting companies. They need better guidance. And my my gut feel up until is that up until now, there's been no guidance at all. And they're just winging it. And they don't even know that they're putting Canada at risk. And that, I think, is the most terrifying thing of all. Should companies like Apple be manufacturing phones there? Is that a far enough disconnect or is that still too close? Well, I suggested this before is that, you know, if we're going to go and I remember during the, at the height of the Huawei controversy, I said, hey, take a look at the iPhone that you're using right now that I'm using right now. Yeah. Speak to you uh, and look at you know, it's manufactured in China using components that are built in China, obviously Apple design, but it's outsourced. And so who knows what happens in that factory? Who knows what kind of access and visibility the Communist Party of China has to these these huge facilities that are run by by Foxconn, by Pegatron. Uh, and so I think that's another that's the other side of the national debate. If we're looking at infrastructure and we're questioning it, uh, we should also question consumer facing products, the, the products that you and I use every day, smartphones, tablets, laptops, home routers, you name it. Um, and in fact, the economy might solve this for us. Apple, of course, having difficulty with its factories in China because of the zero COVID policies. There have been riots and revolts. Apple is hit going pedal to the metal to move some of its production over to other countries like India and Vietnam. So the politicians may not be getting it done, but certainly the global economy is. Uh, and oddly enough, that's who initially moved away from five Huawei five G in Canada. Was the companies made the decision long before the government did? Oddly enough, exactly. Uh, Carly exactly. Lee be with us because we can't wait. We can't wait for months for the government to make decisions. Business has to move ahead regardless. Yeah. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, RCMP uh, suspending a controversial contract it had awarded to a company uh, whose parent organization has ties to the Chinese government. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Big day talking about healthcare today. Oddly enough, as um, we're seeing hospitals again under the stress of not a global pandemic this time, but a uh, flu and a respiratory virus. Um, lots of chatter about masking, very little about getting vaccinated. And that is the tone that needs to change. We were waiting, 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 waiting for vaccine for COVID-19. We've got it for the flu. Yet nobody seems to want it. Nobody seems to want to take it. Uh, like 15% of the population uh, vaccinated. The kids, you want to keep them safe? There's more kids in the ICU in Canada right now than there are more under 12 than there are over 65 from the flu. So you want to get serious about this? Let's not talk about how we coped with it before we got a vaccine for COVID. Let's do the same thing. 
you need to get vaccinated. The kids need to get vaccinated. That's how you're going to get a handle on this. All right. Um, Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Deputy Prime Minister uh, and Finance Minister Christia Freeland uh, on uh, in the news today saying Canadians are frustrated and frightened by the significant strains facing the health care system, stressing that federal and provincial governments need to find solutions. This is the first time I have actually heard anybody say such language and 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 really listen to what Canadians are saying as all the premiers today or most of them uh, were standing up and from east to west talking about um, what needs to be done here's a quick clip from uh, the Nova Scotia premier Tim Houston we want the federal government to stop looking away from this stop stop walking past and whistling and just stop and have a little chat with us and help us make sure that Canadians get the standard of care that they have a right to expect we talked about it a lot during the global pandemic. Uh, we talk about dental care. We talk about daycare. We talk about saving the planet, uh, watching our back. Why are we not spending more time fixing this problem, which is ongoing and we're now seeing with kids and the flu? Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor, political science, McMaster University, and with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thank you. Do you think the tone is changing on this, Henry? Do you think that we're going to see uh, the feds and the provinces come together on this? We are, but it's going to take a long time because there, there's going to have to be movement on both sides. Uh, you know, the, 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 most of the, of the premiers, are, you know, basically are talking about money. The federal government is talking about standards and making sure that uh, we're doing things. They don't want to, you know, give money. Their argument is we don't want to give money that's just going to disappear. We want to know exactly where it's going so we know, well, you know, what what uh, we're, we're actually doing something. We need some standards to know to evaluate the, how we're spending the money properly. So that that's many. The, that, so that's a t- that's sort of the debate between the two right now. Many in the, the premiers are saying that discussion has already been had and around and around in circles we go. They're looking for $28 billion to bring the 22% up to a 35%. It used to be 50-50 back in the day. Uh, $28 billion, I think it was $27 billion, the Auditor General said was lost uh, due to mismanagement out the door with COVID-19 funding. So when you put it in perspective, really... Um, <laughs> You know, I know $28 billion is a lot of money, but it, it, it seems to be a problem that needs to be fixed. Uh, do you see them moving closer quicker? Because I think people are getting fed up with the talk. Oh, yeah. I mean, people are, are very uh, clearly, uh, are, you know, want some action and they want things to be done because they see, particularly in our children's hospitals between Alberta and, and Nova Scotia, there are real, real problems primarily because of the three different types of uh, infections that have been going through the country. So, yeah, they're very, they're very, very unhappy. They want to see actions. And I will say one thing about, you know, in your introduction, and uh, one, there is one province that is really pushing the vaccines, and that's British Columbia. They're really trying to put a hard press on their population to get the, get the vaccinations. And I think, I think the other provinces could take some lessons from, from New Br- uh, from uh, with all due respect, With all due respect, Henry, I've been following this really close, and that's only as of this week when they've had right. six that's kids right. pass right. away. That just happened this week as they've had six kids die there. You're right. Uh, You're and right and, and again, I mean, here we are waiting for uh, COVID-19 vaccine. We're changing topics here uh, forever. And here we have a flu vaccine. 
vaccine and we're talking about mandates and whatever, whereas this is the same thing that can get us out of uh, the flu situation as got us out of uh, out of the global pandemic. But I digress. So, uh, again, I mean, we've got all provinces across uh, east to west talking about this. They all have individual issues and mm-hmm. and and directions and such. But isn't you know, I heard uh, Health Minister DeClos today saying, you know, we need to see the plan before we can start throwing money at it. Again, Auditor General just said, well, you've just wasted that much money in incorrect uh, funds for uh, COVID-19 distribution. Is this argument going to fly? Does Are we actually going to see something this time? And I guess the point that I'm making here is when you've got a government that has so many social issues, mm-hmm. why isn't this higher up on their on their list, do you think? Well, I, I do think it's higher up on their list, but there's less, a little less urgency right now for the federal government, mainly because the uh, the population, when they look at these problems with these these hospitals, the hospitals are under control of the provincial government, and they're the ones that are getting blamed on it. And you, you may think that's unfair, but they're the ones who are getting blamed on it. So I think, you know, the, the pr- urgency is on the province's side. They need to show their populations that they're doing something about it. And one the thing they're saying is we're going to get more money out of the federal government and we're going to put it into the hospitals and health care and things are going to be much better. So it's, uh, yeah, so they got... They I, I think, honestly... There. Honestly, Henry, I think Canadians are being tired of this being pushed off to the provinces, especially when you have all of them saying the same thing. Uh, and again, I mean, you know, you're talking about the provinces paying 78% of the share and the, and the feds paying 22. Uh, do you think people are growing tired of those discussions of the, of the, of that excuse? And, yes, and they are. And they're getting even probably more confused because now the federal government says, hey, we calculated the numbers and we are giving 35%. Yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> I, I quite frankly think the population is not going to pay attention to that argument. They just want they just want to see the hospitals function better as well as the rest of the healthcare system and uh, it gets very, you know, it gets very messy in terms of who gets blamed for it, but it's a uh, a lot of people get blamed for it at at both the political levels and uh you know, and hot, you know, you talk about you talk about dental care and yeah. and daycare. Those are all provincial issues as well. But yeah. you know, we see more interest for that for the feds than than healthcare. Anyway, we're out of time, Henry. We're not going to solve it here. Yeah. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science at Mass University. As always, thanks so much. Be well. Okay, very good, and we'll be back at it. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, again next week right. maybe. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots of chatter about masking. Uh, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board uh, implementing a masking policy they say is not mandatory, but more educational. But when I asked them if they were spreading education around about how it's important for kids to get vaccinated, they said that's not their job. Uh, but masking is. Again, I'm all for masking. If you're in a situation, you should, of course, be doing it. But we remember during the height of the COVID pandemic, it was vaccination that was the key out of all of this and for some reason we lined up we couldn't wait to get our vaccination for COVID-19 hardly the case at all for the flu and reported today there are more kids 12 and under in the hospitals today for the flu than there are over the age of 65. Let's bring in Dr. Timothy Sly epidemiologist professor emeritus school of population and public health Toronto Metropolitan University and with us now. Doctor thank you for the time I hope you're well 
Absolutely, Scott. Thank you. I wish you could turn up your uh, your broadcast volume to get that message out to a larger number of people. You know, honestly, Tim, we've been talking about this all week, and I'm, 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 I've been getting so frustrated that all I've been hearing are people once again being divisive and having the mask mandate. And you know how I feel about that? I mean, I was on a plane. I was masked, blah, blah, blah. If you need the mask, you got a mask. But that's all we're talking about. We are not talking about vaccine and that was the lifesaver during the pandemic is that this not the same uh, best tool we have now yeah both these things work and they demonstrated the work in fact one of the reasons why we've seen so many people uh, just looking at the mask for a moment one of the reasons so, so many people now are coming down with a normal seasonal uh, respiratory things is because the masks work over the last two and a half years and we've been immunities dropped because of that so they do work but the vaccine sure there's no question about it our colleagues have been doing some calculation they're looking trying to figure out the the hundreds of thousands of people who whose lives have been saved generally because of vaccines. Uh, and in fact, uh, the, the, the levels, Canada was doing quite well for a while. And now we're, I, I believe as of the last week of the figures we've got, somewhere about 52% of people are, are basic and boosted. And that should be a lot higher. We've seen mm. a sort of a lack, a, sl- a slacking off of, it, of enthusiasm. Is that the COVID-9 vaccine or is that the flu? No, Shot. that's the COVID vaccine. Yeah, yeah. it's all mixed up together now. Although I, the figures for, for COVID, I was looking again the, yesterday at the figures. Uh, it went down in November, but the, 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 the instance is going up a little bit for December again. It's not surging tremendously high, but it certainly hasn't gone away as I would have hoped prior to the holidays. And of course, we haven't quite got to the holidays yet. Another two or three weeks, we should begin to see a bit of a, a surge as we have the last two or three years too. So obviously the message, get your booster as well. But what percentage of us are vaccinated against the flu? Uh, let's do it for both adults and kids. How many kids are actually, because again, I mean, other than this past week where I finally started asking these questions to doctors like yourself and such, I always thought it was old guys, you know, that are my age and older that, that get the, the flu shot because you're vulnerable. Now it's obviously very important, and NASI recommends six months and older, it's very important that the kids get vaccinated against the flu very very much exactly as you said in fact i was looking at the breakdown of ages and the the actual cases that are appearing if you which are surging way more than they had even before covid came along the the actual figures we've seen right now both for confirmed flu and for what we call ili influenza like illness which is nobody actually tests every single case because you can tell it's pretty much influenza but they're all the, the actual figures are way outside even the confidence limit it's even the expected maximum that we would have expected from prior to the COVID years. It's way outside. It started earlier and it started to climb more steeply. But going back to the ages, if you break them down, the increase has been more astonishingly high in the zero to four age group. And the next most uh, severe is, is what we would expect, the 65 plus. Mm-hmm. And the third, third and down is the 20 to 44. But those little kids, those little tiny kids are, are suffering far more this year than all the other kids. And we're all suffering this year more than influenza than we have done for, for many years. So all the more reasons to get that vaccine. Anybody more than uh, six months now can get uh, uh, vaccinated and they're highly recommended to get. In fact, the kids with immune uh, uh, problems 
they are highly recommended to get the the new uh, um, uh, multivalent vaccine too. That's that's and this year's a good good match, Scott. Yeah, the, apparently some, it is. Yeah, some yeah, sometimes it's a bit of a hit and miss, but this year it's good one. So all the more reason to line up and get the vaccine. We live in a country where the vaccine is free. It's available in almost every drugstore, every street corner, every doctor's office. So why wouldn't we get it? All right, there's the message. Get the flu vaccine. You got the COVID vaccine. Get the flu vaccine. Um, uh, on that note, I've heard today that Pfizer and Moderna are working on a combo, which is an updated COVID vaccine and a flu shot combined. And we talked about that uh, years ago, that, that that may be coming. And now it appears it is. Yeah, that's, that's what we had talked about that. And I think I saw a wonderful uh, uh, a photograph of a poster from the UK just this week. And it said, don't forget booster shots for your COVID. And this will apply to influenza as we do in any way. Think of it as a battery that, that it, it's great when you've just done it and it begins to diminish over time. So you need to get boosted up. Now that we had spoken about that, what, last year, more than a year mm-hmm. ago. And we'd said that probably we'll see a, a full shot that has the COVID plus two or three or maybe even four antigens for the flu all there in at the same time single needle one shot uh, done dusted and finished and then that's good you, and you're 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 good for the, until the next one now that that's coming along it's not uh, widely available but it's uh, it's going to be there there pretty soon all right dr timothy sly with his epidemiologist professor emeritus school of population and public health toronto metropolitan university get the flu vaccine uh doctor as always thank you for the time be well thank you scott bye-bye canada has a new plan to spend billions of, of dollars on boosting its critical mineral sector amid a general a generational opportunity to secure the supply chains that will power everything from electric vehicles to solar panels to wind turbines federal government unveiled its roadmap on friday that focuses on driving exploration, building sustainable infrastructure in order to avoid the economic risks that come from relying on international partners that don't share common values, including the challenges facing European allies struggling with Russia's weaponization of energy supplies. Minister of Natural Resources Jonathan Wilkinson said strategy, said the strategy, backed by nearly $4 billion in the 2022 federal budget, will help create jobs across the country and grow the economy. Very unfortunate this wasn't done years ago. Uh, with clean Canadian liquid natural gas. But I digress. Let's talk more about this and what the future holds. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, I am. Thank you very much, uh, Scott. Doing very well. Uh, We've heard a lot about this in Ontario with the Ring of Fire and the infrastructure that's needed to get up there. Your thoughts on this new critical mineral strategy? Yes, it is long overdue, very long overdue. We should have been doing this before. Um, And this government, since it was elected in 2015, has gone really in the opposite direction on natural resource development writ large. Um, They have passed what they many think is the most stringent um, uh, mineral resource laws in the world, the most stringent resource development laws. And I think what happened was that, uh, and I I know this sounds a bit uh, critical, a bit nasty almost, but I think that finally the lights went on uh, with the cabinet ministers that they were shooting themselves in the foot. I mean by that, 
that we have had a long history, going back to the origins of the country, of, of developing our natural resources. I mean, if you go back all the way to the French and the Cour de Bois, you know, and the uh, the beaver pelts that they hunted and shipped to Europe, and uh, the great Harold Innes, the great uh, economic historian at the University of Toronto, uh, 50, 70 years ago, said you can't understand the development of Canada without understanding the development of its natural resources. And when they first came into power, they saw resource development as just bad, 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 bad. And now they're realizing, I think, that first off, that was a, a grotesque overshoot and that it was uh, causing harm to Indigenous peoples because they live overwhelmingly in areas where there are huge amounts of critical minerals and they realize they're starting to realize that it was hurting our, our the investment in Canada hurting the the job growth the future of the long-term growth in Canada and so I think what happened was that they decided that they've got to change direction and then they put a a gloss on the package if you will which is fair enough saying look we're going to do this in a very green way and a very um um uh, pro-environmental way and that we are going to um you know use use this as part of our contribution to the green economy so they're they're rebranding or repackaging what they should have been doing all along and which we've been doing for 150 years but now they're putting this whole green gloss on it arguing that these critical minerals are essential to the new green economy which indeed they are by the way so i i, I don't want to sound like i'm um uh, against this i mean they should have done this a long time ago they are now doing it the the only question scott is this government and Paul Wells, the journalist in Ottawa, has talked about this a lot. The the this government is long on announcements, long on talk, long on you know they're really good at coming up with lots of new glitzy um, uh, packages, and then they uh, fall down on the execution, on the delivery. So now the question is, are they going to walk their own talk on this new policy? Uh, as you said, it wasn't that long ago when mining was an incredibly bad word, just like drilling oh. for fossil fuels. Exactly. So, uh, and again, I, I talked to Elizabeth May just a couple of weeks ago, and I said, why aren't we focusing on coal, getting the world off coal, as opposed to all these piecemeal efforts that really don't do anything? And she said, it's 20 years too late for that. But mind you, I remember the Greens saying that 20 years ago, and I'm seeing the same thing here with pipelines. So uh, why is it all of a sudden different now? And again, I'm like you. I'm all for this, um, but mining all of a sudden doesn't pollute anymore. Exactly. I, I think what happened, and and I and I'm, I'm believe me, I've been analyzing this too, saying, okay, what's going on? Because I do believe there's rationality. I really believe this. I believe humans are rational. I believe governments are rational, and politicians are. So what is going on? Well, first and foremost, we know about that horrible invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which has just turned everything upside down in terms of resources and oil. Remember, Russia. Everyone thinks of Russia as oil and natural gas, which is correct, but. Russia, as I tell my own students all the time, it spans almost half of the northern hemisphere. It occupies 11 time zones. Remember, there's 24 time zones in the world. Half of that is 12. They span 11, mm. which is half of the planet Earth in the northern hemisphere. And they have more minerals, more natural resources, more everything than any other single country on Earth. And so I think the lights went on finally and somebody in the PMO, uh, in the office of the PMO, 
saying, oh my goodness, this is an enormous opportunity for Canada because uh, Russia is now a pariah state. And any Western uh, firm that has the capital, the resources to invest in Russia uh, is not going to because this will be very, very damaging to the brand. That's the first point. The second point is they're looking at the various op-eds and the various criticism that have been made by people like Professor Jack Mintz saying, look, you know, foreign capital is leaving the country. And you are, you are because of you and your policies that are so restrictive. And so I think that they're they're starting to get ready for the next election. And they're they're starting to clear the deck of their policies that weren't so clever and were hurting economic growth because I think they're they're preparing for an, a, a real drag them down knuckles based a, a, a fight with Pierre Poiliev. And he's going to say this government is anti-business. It's anti-minerals. It's anti-resource development. It's anti-anything that leads to economic prosperity. And so I think that they're starting to change their policies to deal with the reality that they're now facing. So let me ask you this, Ian. Uh, you said Russia is just as rich in all of this as what Canada is. So yes. why won't this be like oil or fossil fuels where Russia will just do it cheaper, less environmentally friendly and hold the rest of the world hostage with this just as they are with oil? Well, my here's my take on this. Uh, the that the the restrictions, even though it's not in the news every day of the week, right uh, since it's receded, I'm talking the Russian invasion. What I'm reading in the you know in the technical journals and the back papers of the financial press is that these sanctions are biting. They're getting things are getting worse and worse and worse for Russia. And so yes, yes, of course, you can a country like Russia or Iran can cheat to get around the sanctions. The problem is is that minerals resources writ large are enormously capital intensive. I mean, in the billions and billions of dollars. Russia doesn't have that kind of money. They don't have the technology. People don't realize that minerals and resources are very high tech, even though environmental groups have portrayed them and tried to brand them as very crude, low tech. They're not. They use some of the most sophisticated geological and mining and extraction technologies that are imaginable. And So who has that money? Who has those technologies. Well, they're Western countries and Western companies, and they don't want to go near Russia right now because Russia's brand is toxic. And so if you are a big mineral resource company, the last place on earth you want to be involved with is Russia. And so you still need the minerals. You still want to develop them because that's your core business if you're a mining company, but you don't dare go near Russia because of you know the blowback, uh, the, the the hurt to the, the the damage to your brand. And let's be clear, the Americans have been very very clear they will uh, inflict pain on you if you do that. So Canada is seeing this as an opportunity. They also realize the critical minerals are in fact necessary for the green economy, uh, including battery technology. And so they finally realized, oh my goodness, we can. And have our cake and eat it. We can come up with the mineral strategy and be celebrating our green our green credentials. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, Canada, now agreeing to get back into the mining industry and see it as a generational opportunity. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. It is Friday. I am well. Thank goodness for that. Uh, We had the chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board on the air yesterday, and she was telling us about the mandatory mask, not the mandatory, sorry, um, the masking policy, which was all about education, trying to get everybody, you know, hey, would you mind putting one of these on? blah, 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 blah. And I remember saying during the interview, well, this seems pretty reasonable. And what I wasn't told at that time is that in order to opt out of this, because I was told you're either in or you're out, and if you don't want to, that's cool. We respect everybody. What we weren't told, as I'm reading now in the spec, is that, uh, no, you got to supply a form from your parents. So in other words, you have to do more to opt out than to opt in. That's wrong in two fronts. Number one, it's not fair. And number two, it's not very transparent. I asked the school board chair yesterday, Yesterday, um, are they doing as much to educate kids on vaccination, kids and parents on vaccination, as they are masking? They said, no, that's not their job. Our job's to educate. So you're educating on masking, but you're not educating on uh, vaccination, which we know is the single biggest thing you can do to fix this, just like it was for COVID-19. I think the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board is going to get blowback on this, not because of the idea, but because of the way they're handling it. What are your thoughts? I would suspect, uh, and I've not spoken to anyone from the school board on this one, but I would suspect that if you were to ask a lot of them, the idea of enforcing or bringing on enforcing, as we've said, but bringing forward a mask idea is just seen as way less work than trying to get people to get the vaccines. We've seen for three years now that some people are very excited to get vaccines and some people are very unexcited about the vaccines. And the hesitancy on the vaccine is on both the left and the right because one will paint it that these are all extreme right-wingers like the Freedom Convoy who don't want vaccination. This is clearly an issue on both sides, on all sides of the political spectrum. Scott, there was a poll that was done and people can go look it up. And and I don't have it in front of me because I didn't know you were going to ask me about this today. But uh, this was a poll that was done a year or a year and a half ago go of who are the people who are not getting the vaccines and the vast majority were not right wing activists they were soccer moms they were soccer moms were yeah. the number one group that wasn't doing this so it's been portrayed as this everybody who doesn't it's agree only with those vaccine, on the right wing yeah, yeah. everyone who didn't agree with the vaccine was standing in front of uh, parliament buildings honking their horn that's not what this was so the idea that if we're going to push we the school board or anyone else if we're going to push that vaccines are the answer that's a lot more work than to say, look, we're going to put masks on and we're going to make it so you can get out of it, but I, you have to do something to do to get through that. I don't know if asking people to go back to masking is easier than asking people not to get vaccinated because we remember the global pandemic. Oh, sure it is, Scott. Sure it is. And, absolutely. Really? It is. Absolutely, because the there was over 90, there's like 90% of us that got vaccinated during the height of the global I know, pandemic. I know, and I can tell you there's a lot of people who got vaccinated but who haven't had more than the two doses because they said, yeah. I will do what I need to do, yeah. but I don't know that I'm comfortable with this. And now if you say we're going to make more vaccines have to be done, like I, I still believe, you can disagree with this, I still believe that if the government came back and said, you know what, all those people who got their two doses, now for you to participate in 
civil life in Canada, you now need two boosters. People would lose oh. their minds. Yeah, People time. said, I big did time. what I needed to do. I put stuff in my body that I wasn't sure about, but I'm buying in. But you're Here, making me do more. No, thank you. I agree with that 100%, but here, you know what? Don't sit and scream at the government for the health care system, which everybody thinks is great and will not uh, spend any time in changing the template, which needs to be done. You can't scream about your kid getting sick, not getting into a hospital if you don't have your kid vaccinated. Again, at the end of the day, if you want to be safe, just like the... And again, I'm not telling you to do it. I'm not saying make it mandatory by any means. But if you're going to complain that uh, your kid is getting the flu then get your kid vaccinated just like we did for COVID-19 you can't sit and bring the healthcare system to its knees and demand everybody wearing mask at mass and then not take the medication when it's provided to you that is the science but Scott, when has that not been the case? And not even just with I, vaccines. I know, we I know. don't we don't like to do something and then when things blow so, up in our face, we say, Well, why didn't you warn me about this? Now, again, I, I'm I, I'm not telling parents that they have to go out. I'm not telling them they have to go out and get vaccines for their nope. kids because you nope. you are responsible for your kids. And I know people yep. who will say, I will even take the vaccine myself, though I'm not sure, but my kids very different story. Yeah, I agree. But uh, so back to your question. To say to someone, you've got to wear a mask, I think most parents, most parents will acquiesce and say, well, all right, I don't love it, but it, you know, it's still a better option, those who are not sure, than getting my kid injected with something. I can deal with a mask. It's a pain. Uh, vaccines have been around for a hundred and some odd years. I, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying, but it, but at the end of the day, uh, you're going to wear a mask, which lowers immunity, which got us into this place in the first, which got us here in the first place. Come on. When you say follow the science, the science is the vaccine. People are going to see that masks are a less permanent option, whether that's yeah. right or not. And I think it's just less of a fight. Uh, good point. All right, Scott Radley. Scott Radley show coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. As always, have a great weekend. You as well, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Steve. Uh, maybe we could imagine a new Canadian flag with maple leaf removed. Replace it with one of those two-hump camels. Put Christiana Freeland on the front seat and Justin on the back seat. Break the camels back. Can you hear Christina shouting, Go to the whip, Justin! Go to the whip! Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.